0: The reading is from uh, Isaiah 42, starting at verse 1. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his law, the islands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says. He who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have have taken place and new things I declare before they spring into being I announce them to you. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Be to God. Benno, Benno van der Toren is going to preach for us this morning. Now, just, just a little quiz question as you make your way up there. How many people, if I said, where does Benno work, how many people would know the answer? About half. Where do you work, Benno? I work at Wycliffe Hall, a college just up the road. Okay. He's a tutor at Wycliffe Hall. What do you teach them mostly? I teach doctrine. You teach doctrine, okay. (coughs) That means he teaches them what to believe. That's right, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. In the nicest possible way. That's probably shorthand. Uh, And how many people know what country Benno comes from? What country do you come from, Benno? The Netherlands. Okay, excellent. And you also are a
2: professor. uh, uh, Is that an honorary professorship in the Netherlands? Yeah, it's an honorary professorship. I'm honorary professor of the in The Theology of Charismatic Renewal at the Free University of Amsterdam. Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> so how, many, how often does that mean you go to Amsterdam? Um, probably eight times over the coming two months. Fantastic, absolutely. Yeah. And the reason you're
1: speaking at World Mission Mich- Week, how many people know what country Benno served in with his wife Bedina?
2: Only about a third. What country did you serve in, Benno? Um, I won't quiz your geography on this, but uh, <laughs> before coming to Oxford actually we served for eight years in the Central African Republic. That is a country, and as the name says, it's smack in the heart of Africa. Absolutely, yeah. and you were in theological education. Then? I was also in theological education. Okay. Yeah. And how
1: many people know how many children Benno's got? <laughs> about a quarter. How many children do you have, Benno?
2: We have three sons um, between 17 and 22. One with us, and two now in the Thank Netherlands. In you know, the Netherlands. Thank you. Now you know all about Benno van der Shall we pray before we? ask what what this passage means to us. Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray that as your word is heard and proclaimed, that these do not just remain ideas to us, but that through this we may encounter you. We pray that you open our minds, that we may understand the message. We pray that... You change our affections to bring them in line with yours, and change our will so that we are ready to act upon your word to us. Amen. It's a great joy to preach on Mission Sunday. Um, We live in such an exciting world in that respect. Um, We worked for eight years in the Central African Republic, as I indicated, and this is an amazing country in the heart of Africa where... In 1920, there was hardly any Christian. Missions sort of started basically, few inroads in 1900, started in the 20s and the 30s, and by 1980, 80% of the population considered themselves Christians. That is, almost an entire country converted in two generations. If we think about, Asia, which is uh, the concentration of this mission week, we see incredible developments in China. China is probably going to be the mission miracle. If in two, three centuries, if Christ has not returned, we look back to the 20th century. The miracle is going to be China, where in the early 50s there might have been a million Christians, and all missionaries at the time were chucked out of the country. And uh, after persecution, the Cultural Revolution many people pretty much thought that this was the end of Christianity in China. Maybe a couple of pockets left, but basically this would be the end. But in the 70s, in the 80s, and even more in the 90s, when sort of the the veil of persecution started lifting a bit, we saw that in this context the church was growing. And that is now probably one of the fastest growing churches over the world. It's not just China, there's a number of countries in Southeast Asia, think about Vietnam, Cambodia, where the church is growing exponentially. Yet if we think about mission, mission is not only about success stories. There are also very difficult things to mission. And when we came to the Central African Republic, we were just there at a moment when virtually all missionaries were evacuated from Congo and where people were hugely worried what would happen with this church. There's quite a lot of mission partners here, and often when you come up in the front, um, we will tell stories about the successes, isn't it? But mission is also very much about the setbacks, the hard moments. Remember moments when you would really expect so much from one person, invested very much in one person, and and, and in the end you were so disappointed where things ended up. Programs that just crumble, or circumstances that go right against what you hope that would happen. How do you go on? How do you keep on going in this mission task of the church? Um, I'd like to think a bit about that, what mission is and where we get our strength from. By not thinking just about mission in terms of programs, mission is about programs, and um, we'll talk a lot about mission programs, isn't it? But mission is first of all about the heart of God. There is where it originates. And this passage helps us to to look into the heart of God when thinking about the servant of God in this passage who is the servant of God's mission. And I'd like to look with you um, to the question what the mission of the servant is and what the identity of the servant is. So a couple of points on the mission of the servant and on the identity of the servant from this passage. First on the mission, it's very clear from this passage that it is a mission to the nations. Um, Isaiah 42, please keep it open if if you have your Bible with you. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. That's actually very remarkable, that it is a mission to the nations. Because these chapters of Isaiah... Are in their entirety or could be read as a response to a complaint of Israel. A complaint of Israel, which you maybe uh, may know, which is written down in, in, in 4027, where Israel says, or God says to Israel, Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my course is disregarded by my God? Israel is complaining here, and they had reason to complain. They were in a foreign country. They were exiles, and it looked as if their God was no longer in power. They look back to the glorious days of David and Solomon with this glorious temple, but now the temple was in ruins, and they were in exile, and the real gods with all their power seemed to be Bel and Nabo, who had just conquered the armies of Israel. And they cry out to God and they say, God, help us, save us. Why have you forgotten? And God says in these chapters, I'll answer. And in chapter 41, he actually, um, he commits himself, he, he, he commits his entire honor to save this people. And then here he's telling how he's going to do that. But when he's saving, he's not just saving Israel. In fact, Israel is very much focused on their own problems, their own limitations, their own suffering. But God here opens their eyes and says, my, my, my vision for this world is much bigger even than yours. My heart is on you, but I'm equally concerned about the world. And don't forget that you have a calling for the world. I want to reach the world. That's maybe something we recognize. I think many, many of us have sort of set our first steps in the church and have come to God because of some experience of, of, of need, um, maybe a, a sense of meaninglessness, maybe a deep sadness of something that went wrong, maybe a sense of guilt, maybe a sense of loneliness, and that brought us to the gospel, that brought us to the church and the Christian community, and we were comforted, we were forgiven, we found meaning. Yet, what you discover when you come in a church is that the gospel is not just about me. The gospel is about the world. God's plan is for all the nations. Not just the nations I like, but even the nations that I don't like, don't even know, or for Israel, the nations that oppress. That means that in a certain respect, embracing gospel is not only a solution to our pain and suffering, In an important way, embracing the gospel means that we acquire suffering, we we suffer more because our heart starts to be aligned with the heart of God. And therefore it may be that new suffering comes, possibly because of opposition, persecution, but also because we see the suffering of the world as we haven't seen it before. We're no longer able to just live for ourselves, just live for our own families, just live for our own streets. The world out there suffers. The world out there is in need for God. And God's heart breaks. And we pray, O Lord, break my heart, for what break breaks yours. It's a mission to the nations. If we come into the realm of God, our lives are opened to a wider world. Secondly, it's a mission of justice. In the first uh, verses, uh, first four verses of this chapter, we find the word justice three times. Um, he will bring justice to the nations. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will establish justice on the earth, and that is for which the the nations are hoping. I grew up in a Christian context where the justice of God was basically something negative, basically something to free from, where God's justice condemns and where we flee from the justice of God to the grace of God. For Israel, actually, the justice of God was not something to flee from. It was something to long for. And working in Africa, I've seen how important it is to long for justice and, and, and how important it is even for normal life. We, if, if, if you're a middle-class European, we, you can sort of take justice for gra- granted. In most of the cases, there is a rule of, of law that protects you. But in many countries, that's not the case. For many people, that is not the case. Um, there are situations in Africa where, where people are prosecuted and no one protects them. It's not just the pity things of having problems with the police and, and having no rule of view to protect you. No, there are situa- we had terrible situations of uh, a part-time students being shot through the head simply because he belonged to the, the wrong ethnic group. And at such a moment, you think, God, why is no one protecting him? And why is there no justice? Think about Rwanda, the genocide. Think about now, actually, the east of the Central African Republic, one of the most forgotten areas of of Africa and of the world, where the Lord's Resistance Army has taken refuge because that is a place where no one can get them. And we have friends telling how the Lord's Resistance Army is raiding villages, taking young girls as sex slaves, taking young men and training them up to soldiers before they can develop any sense of conscience which allows them to say no. In this world, you cry out for justice. And this justice which the servant is going to bring is not just about, not just about the rule of law, it's not just about protection. Actually, justice in this verse, these verses is a very rich term. It's a term which comes very close to the biblical term Shalom. If God brings justice, that is about condemnation, because there will be an end to those who fight God and fight His good will for this world. But it's first of all, about God putting things right. God putting things right among the nations, in the nations, and God putting things right between God and us. That is what justice is about. And that is what the servant is bringing. So the mission of the servant is a mission to the nations, and it's a mission to bring justice and shalom to the nations. Thirdly, it is a mission to the bruised and the broken. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. That's a powerful image. It's an image, I think, with which Israel in exile could identify a smoldering wick. Think about a very little, a tiny oil lamp with a wick in it, uh, which normally could sort of burn brightly. But at certain moments, the light is very, very small. And you see the smoke already coming off, and it could almost be out. But a servant came to bring new light, to bring new strength to this people. Think about the bruised reed. A reed which is one of the weakest things in this world. And it so often bruises. But a servant comes and bends it straight, mends it brings new strength. That is actually quite a good picture of what human life is about. Uh, The French philosopher, Christian philosopher Blaise Pascal said that every human being is, in fact, a Rousseau pensant, a thinking reed. On the one hand, there is this greatness, Uh, We we can think about the world, we can control the world, but in the end, every human being is also just a reed. With another biblical image, you are like grass, the sun shines over it, and it withers. In a place like Oxford, which is the center of thought, of course, it's easy to put so much stress on the thinking of the reed, on us being able to control the world, on us being able to control our lives. But there's so many moments when we're not, so many people who are not, when everything we thought was in order just crumbles, crumbles, just breaks. And this servant came to mend the broken and the bruised. That's the servant. The servant whom God promises, that's his mission, to mend broken reeds, to bring justice to the nations. And then the question, of course, comes up, who is this servant? And I guess that for many people in this church, that's almost a rhetorical question. The servant is Jesus. In the New Testament, it's clear that the servant is Jesus. Yet, actually, in this context of Isaiah, it isn't clear at first sight that the servant is Jesus. Um, the last time it's spoken of the servant, the last chapter, actually the servant is Israel. God says here, it seems to Israel, you are my servant, you are called to bring justice to the nations. You are called to set things right in my name. And that is how actually many uh, Jewish interpreters of this passage have interpreted it. This is about Israel. We are called to bring justice to the nations. We are called to bring God shalom. And people listening to that in exile, they must have been, thought, they must have been thinking about these prophets. Are you kidding? Are you really kidding that it is we who should, should bring the message of salvation to the world? They're They're not just our enemies, but they're so strong, and we are so weak. And actually, as Isaiah unfolds, it becomes more and more clear that Israel is not capable to fulfill this task, that actually Israel itself needs a servant, that a servant needs to come to heal the bruised reed of Israel itself, to flame the smoldering wick, of Israel itself and you find also Jewish interpreters who therefore say actually this, this servant it's the Messiah in the end God himself will come God will bring the Messiah and he will bring Shalom he will bring what no one else could bring what where Israel had failed Jesus the Messiah has brought it. That is how it then is interpreted in the New Testament, and rightly so, of course, because where Israel had failed, and not because it was Israel, but where humanity had failed, the suffering servant of the Lord, Jesus Christ, came to bring justice to the nation. And the amazing thing, then, is that in the end, it is not just Jesus who brings justice. In the end it comes true, it becomes true again that it is the people of God, Israel and later the church who are called to bring this message, to bring this justice to the nations. This same passage is in the New Testament applied to Jesus in Matthew and it is applied to the church in Acts. In Acts it said that the church is called to be a light to the nations. We are called to be, just as Israel, the messenger of God, proclaiming justice, identifying with the bruised. And if we know that's first of all Jesus, we also know how it's possible. I talked about three characteristics of the mission of the servant, isn't it? It's a mission to the nations, Uh, It's a a mission that brings justice, and it's a mission to bruised people. There's a final thing I would like to say about his mission. He will not falter, and he will not be discouraged. There's actually similar words that are used here as in the earlier verse, which talks about the bruised reed and the smoldering wick. Jesus came to identify with bruised reeds and smoldering wicks. Yet he was not snuffed out. He did not break. He went on and brought justice. And that's important because if you get involved with God's plan for his will, there will be opposition. And particularly if you get involved with bruised and broken people, there are moments when you want to give up and just want to know how to go on. I remember a couple of years, Rob Humphreys, Rob Humphreys, who was the, uh, the predecessor of John Holder, working in Cutterslow, um, who, who, who tried to work with young people there and regularly sent out prayer letters. Prayer letters where he, he talked about uh, people being influenced by the gospel, people trying to get their life on track. And then at a certain moment, writing this prayer letter saying, um, I'm so sad, I've worked for a long time with these girls, and it seemed that they were getting the life on track. But they have simply chosen to go back to their old life. It was easier to live a life of drugs than to live a new life. There will be many setbacks. And if it would be up to us, we would give up. And we'd give up too easily. The only reason we hold on we continue to proclaim, is that we know that Jesus was not discouraged because God's plan goes on. Amen. Shall we just pray? Jesus Christ, we love you. We thank you that uh, you are this servant of God, the servant of the Lord who came so close. I thank you that you identify with me in my brokenness when I am bruised, when I am weak. And I thank you most of all that you did not give up where I would break under the pressure. And I pray that as we get involved and are involved in your mission, that you will use us in our weakness, in our limitations, to proclaim the message of your shalom, your justice, your peace. Amen.